Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. Your Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast. It's made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can join Southern Mysteries on Patreon and you get a little something in return. You can hear more than 60 episodes in the Southern Mysteries archive, and you also have an option to support the show and hear exclusive monthly episodes that are new this year called The Lesser Knowns, stories of lesser-known figures related to major historical events. Join me on Patreon today and catch up on all the episodes you haven't heard at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Halloween invites us to face our fears, from ghosts and goblins to vampires and angels. This time of year is our annual reminder that death will be the eventual outcome for all of us. What becomes of us after the heart ceases to beat? The eternal mystery of death fascinates and terrifies Supernatural or paranormal phenomena prey on all we think we know about life. Science can't explain it. Many people have experienced an event of this kind and believe they have come face to face with angels, demons, or ghosts. The Bell Witch legend of the early 19th century is one of the most recognized examples of the unexplained in Southern lore. Folk beliefs often point to anxiety or fear. They reflect social and cultural tensions that dominated the era in which the stories emerge. Today, people visit the Bell Witch Cave near the small town of Adams, Tennessee, to try to connect with a spirit said to have haunted and terrorized the Bell family. Very little of the Bell's story is associated with that cave, The horror they referred to as Our Family Trouble entered their home in 1817. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the sinister Bell Witch. 32-year-old John Bell married 12-year-old Lucy Williams in Halifax County, North Carolina, in 1782. The Bells settled on a farm and had nine children. By 1804, John and Lucy Bell moved the family to the Red River Settlement in Robertson County, Tennessee. This community of just 600 people would eventually become Adams, Tennessee. When the family traveled to their new home, they brought with them a slave named Chloe and her eight children, who had been gifted to Lucy Bell. The Bells were considered prosperous for this area, but not wealthy. They had a good life on their 300 acres. Eventually, John expanded his land ownership to 1,000 acres. He became an elder at the local Baptist church. And the family, well, they were known as hard workers. To understand why the Bells' family troubles struck fear in the heart of their community, it's important to know what was happening around this time. 
several events terrified people and made them think the world was ending. The Great Comet of 1811 was the brightest comet with the longest duration of brightness on record until Comet Hale-Bopp in 1997. And this comet was viewed as a sign of doom. The same year, on December 16th, the Midwestern and Southern United States felt the first of three earthquakes that were so intense they shook church bells in New England and Charleston. Parts of the Mississippi River flowed backward. They were considered the biggest earthquakes in American history, a magnitude 7 to 8, and people blamed them on that comet. These events left people terrified, stirred up questions about faith and the afterlife, even spiritual warfare. By 1817, the Bells were doing well in their community, making a living off their farm, and life was peaceful again. But that was the year everything changed for the Bells, and Red River, now Adams, Tennessee, would be defined by a legend. The Bell family trouble began with strange sounds inside their home. Legend says the family were awakened in the middle of the night by what they described as the sound of rats running around the house. Then came the sounds of clicking and knocking on walls. In time, the family heard knocking and beating on the outside of their house, like something or someone was fighting to get inside. John Bell and his oldest sons would run outside to try to identify the source of the knocking, but they could never find it. Then came John Bell's encounter with a strange creature that looked like a large dog with a rabbit's head. Well, John Bell was a farmer who always carried his gun while walking the property. He was so disturbed at the sight of this creature, he fired at it. He didn't kill it. It just vanished. Weeks later, John's son Drew saw a large green bird-like creature on their property. Within days, his siblings, Drury and Betsy Bell, saw a girl dressed in green swinging from a tree branch near the Bell Cave. Moments later, the girl vanished. There were other sightings of strange and terrifying creatures on the Bell property that year. One of the Bell's slaves, Dean, saw an odd-looking animal that was the size of a large black hound dog, but he swore this was not a dog. He described it as a strange creature that began to follow him. He felt threatened and used his axe to split the animal's skull in two. The next day, he was walking through the area where he had killed this creature, and it appeared again, this time with two heads. Dean stood frozen in place until the creature began to talk to him. Dean fled the area, and from that day on, always carried an axe and a witch ball his wife made to protect their family from whatever form this evil spirit haunting the Bell property could take. 
the Bell family trouble was constant. The family started hearing the sound of a disembodied woman's voice. She would sing and laugh in such an unusual manner that she kept the family awake all night. This unexplained entity began to get physical. She made it clear she did not like the Bell's 12-year-old daughter, Betsy. She would pull the blankets off the child as she slept, move objects in the girl's room, and at times pulled and scratched at Betsy's hair. When Betsy became upset, tried to defend herself, she was punched by this being she could not see and left with welts and scratches all over her body. The only person in the bell house this spirit left alone was Lucy Bell. The Bell family was terrified and embarrassed by what they believed to be a haunting in their home. They were very religious, and as an elder in his church, John Bell worried that the church would retaliate against him for somehow letting this supernatural being into the family home. When he realized the haunting wasn't going to fade away, John Bell reached out to his neighbor, James Johnston. He shared about the family trouble, and Johnston spent time in the Bell home. He later claimed to have witnessed things that he could not explain in the Bell home. He convinced the family this entity was intelligent when he began to speak to it, and this spirit began speaking to the family. It told Lucy Bell she was the most perfect woman living. This talkative spirit began delivering sermons and quoting scripture from the Bible, then cussing like a sailor and arguing with preachers who tried to banish her from the bell home in the name of God. Eventually, the spirit's voice was so strong and clear, she introduced herself as the witch of a woman named Kate Batts. She was well known in Red River because she was a bit of an outcast. She had very little money and carried the weight of the physical labor on her family farm. She was the kind of person who always tried to make herself the center of attention. Legend says Kate cursed the bells and conjured this spirit after a bad business deal with John Bell. But Bell's business deal was with Kate's brother-in-law, Benjamin Batts. The deal led to John Bell's excommunication from Red River Baptist Church after he was accused of usury. But it may have been more than bad business. The church was likely concerned about John Bell's spiritual state as an elder, considering they knew John Bell believed a supernatural entity was living in his home. Kate Batts, who was still very much among the living, denied any connection to this spirit. But the entity continued to respond to the name, Kate. With each passing day, she drew a lot of attention from people who showed up at the Bell House in the hope of communicating with what the Bell neighbors started to call the Bell Witch. The witch was also said to have captured the attention of future U.S. President Andrew Jackson. He was a skeptic, but legend says he wanted to visit the Bell House 
to prove this witch story was a hoax. The future president and the men who joined him on this visit were screamed at and slapped by the Bell Witch, who kept pulling their blankets away in the middle of the night. Jackson arrived a skeptic, but was said to have left, proclaiming he'd rather fight the British in New Orleans than fight the Bell Witch. The two people in the Bell home, the witch always wanted to fight, were John Bell and his daughter Betsy. The spirit called John Bell Old Jack and often threatened his life and cursed him. It wanted to see Old Jack Bell dead. And in 1820, Kate got what she wanted. The psychological and often physical abuse at the hands of the Bell Witch began to deeply affect John Bell. He started experiencing seizures and attacks of convulsions. By December 19, 1820, John Bell's health had quickly declined. He fell into a coma and died. According to the Bell Witch legend, the family were in the room with John Bell when he passed away. The spirit was overheard gloating that she forced John Bell to drink from a bottle of poison. The family claimed they found a vial of poison in John Bell's bed. At John's funeral, the spirit rejoiced that he was finally dead, while his family and friends mourned. With John Bell gone, the spirit's attacks on Betsy Bell increased and ruined the young woman's plans to marry her fiancé, Joshua Gardner. Betsy and Joshua were childhood sweethearts who planned to spend the rest of their life together. But the spirit started cursing Joshua Gardner with choking attacks. Betsy was convinced her father was dead because the spirit wished it and had made it happen. She felt Joshua could be in real danger. Betsy Bell ended the engagement. Eventually, Gardner moved on, and so did Betsy. She married her former teacher, Richard Powell, and moved to Mississippi. With John Bell dead and Betsy gone, it seemed the Bell Witch's work was done. Bell Witch activity stopped until 1828, when John Bell Jr. claimed the spirit returned to the home for three nights, in which she wanted to talk about the past and the future. John Jr. said the Bell Witch told him she was leaving again, but would return to John Bell's most direct descendant in 107 years. 1935 came and went, and there were no reported interactions between the Bell Witch and the Bell family. The legend of the Bell Witch has never departed Adams, Tennessee. Some locals believe the spirit relocated to a cave along the Red River, not far from where the Bell House once stood. The sounds of an old woman laughing and screaming in the cave have often been reported. Some people explore the cave and claim to be punished for entering, reportedly slapped or choked. 
There have been cave explorers who claim scarier encounters with Kate. A sense of being paralyzed in place, anchored down by heavyweights placed on them that made them feel as though they would be trapped in the cave and die there. Today, that cave is simply a part of a bigger story, a tourist attraction in Adams, visited by ghost hunters and curious people. Historians and folklorists who have spent decades researching the Bell Witch and the Bell family say these days there are three kinds of Bell family descendants. Those who believe the Bell Witch is a scam and are embarrassed by the legend. Those who think it's a tall tale with a touch of truth somewhere in the middle. And those who believe it all which is why the Bell Witch has defined this region for generations. It is an iconic legend in Southern American lore. But where does the truth lie? The primary source for the story of this legend is Martin Van Buren Ingram's 1894 book, Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. Ingram was the owner of a local newspaper who had interviewed witnesses who claimed to have encounters with the Bell Witch. Ingram also relied on the notes of Richard Bell, a son of John and Lucy. Skeptics have taken issue with a source, because Richard Bell was only six years old when the haunting started in the Bell home, and he did not write about it in a diary used as Ingram's primary source until 30 years later. The Bell Witch had already become a legendary part of Adam's history, and it's possible Richard Bell's accounts were a combination of real or imagined memories, along with stories he heard in childhood. The biggest issue with Ingram's account was his habit of falsifying some of his newspaper sources throughout his career. This left people wondering if he could have falsified some of the accounts of the Bell family trouble to make money selling a book about the legend. And so much of this legend has been debunked. There are local historians who say Andrew Jackson knew the Bell family, but his connection to the Bell Witch legend has never been confirmed. Bell Witch researcher Pat Fitzhugh points to a real connection between Jackson and the Bells. When Jackson was a general, some of John Bell's sons had fought with him. He really owned land near the Bell property, but the story of Jackson's visit and encounter with the Bell Witch has never been verified. Fitzhugh says there is not a single reputable record of that visit that could confirm Jackson had an encounter with this entity. As to John Bell's death, allegedly at the hands of poison given to him by the Bell Witch, science could explain what really happened to John Bell. Dr. Megan Mann, an assistant professor of chemistry at Austin Peay State University, has presented research and theories on the Bell Witch. In 2021, she told the Tennessean that she was drawn to the legend after she heard of John Bell's poisoning. She read Richard Bell's book, Our Family Trouble. Richard Bell wrote that after the witch revealed to the family she had poisoned their father, 
they found a vial of poison and gave some of the liquid to a cat. Within minutes of ingesting this liquid, the cat died. The family destroyed the poison by throwing it in the fire, and it ignited a blue flame that terrified them. As someone who knows about chemistry and toxicology, Dr. Mann said the medical symptoms Richard Bell notes his father experienced before his death point to neurological symptoms caused by heavy metal poisoning. Richard Bell wrote that his father had trouble swallowing, experienced weird twitching sensations in his face, and his trouble spread to other parts of his body. Dr. Mann noted that if you went to the doctor and described these symptoms today, you'd be referred to a neurologist. She decided to research the blue flame produced when the Bell family threw that poison into fire. She researched 50 elements that were common in the area between 1817 to 1820, the year John Bell died. Ten of those elements could have caused a blue flame when thrown into fire. She ruled out lead poisoning because the family mentioned John Bell would fall ill, but at times could bounce back from his symptoms and feel better. Lead would have remained in his system for a long time, which led Dr. Mann to arsenic. When metabolized in small doses, humans can quickly recover. At the time of John Bell's troubles, arsenic was a common ingredient used in rat poison on farms and found in many household products. Arsenic poisoning would have caused the neurological symptoms John Bell displayed by causing facial and muscle twitching. Dr. Mann's research could easily explain the science behind the death of John Bell. Many people died of arsenic poisoning at this time, and John Bell may have been a victim of arsenic he accidentally metabolized over time, rather than a large dose administered by the Bell Witch. Science may explain John Bell's death, but there's still the question of how the story of the Bell Witch could take hold of an entire community in early 19th century Tennessee. The first thing that could have fanned the flames of this legend with spirituality. The Second Great Awakening had taken hold and would continue until about 1840. This revival movement rejected rationalism and embraced emotion and the supernatural. The stories of Betsy Bell fighting back against this evil entity attacking her evoked the kind of emotion that fed into the movement's embrace of this idea of spiritual warfare that people were literally in a fight against good and evil. And the Bell's story of their troubles reflected the need for people to embrace God, the good, lest they be destroyed by evil and burn in hell. The second factor that could have fanned the flames of this legend is an important part of the story of the Bell Witch that's often overlooked. Slavery. Slave owners in this part of 19th century Tennessee were not rich. They often owned about 10 slaves and not being financially sound, would sell or trade slaves at a faster rate than rich slave owners to make ends meet. This constant exchange of human beings 
meant an increased rate of family separation for the enslaved. A constant fear that at any given moment, someone they loved would be taken from the property and never heard from again. Some historians believe the Bell Witch story was used as a tool of fear to keep slaves in line, to warn them if they did not obey their masters, they could experience something like the slave Dean experienced in this legend. Encounters with the witch in creature form, creatures that would make them pay if they stepped out of line. Whether based in truth or simply a legend, Kate persists. In Richard Bell's accounts of his family troubles, he wrote the following regarding his own doubts about the legend. Whether it was witchery or some more modern science akin to that of mesmerism or some hobgoblin native to the wilds of the country or a disembodied soul shut out from heaven or a demon let loose from hell, I am unable to decide, nor has anyone yet divined its nature or calls for appearing. And I trust this description of the monster in all forms and shapes and of many tongues will lead experts who may come with a wiser generation to a correct conclusion and satisfactory explanation. Richard Bell's words were said to be the only first-hand account from a living witness of the Bell haunting. If only someone could find the actual document. When Martin Ingram wrote his 1894 book, That Has Become the Holy Grail, of the accounts of the Bell Witch, his primary source was his first-hand account from Richard Bell. When pressed and questioned, he could never produce a copy of the manuscript. No one has ever been able to find it. We only have Richard Bell's account, written in Martin Ingram's book. Bell Witch researcher Pat Fitzhugh's theory is the manuscript could not be produced by Martin Ingram because it never existed. Fitzhugh notes professional analysis of the writing style, use of cliché words, and Freemasonry references provide strong evidence that Martin Ingram was likely the author of the eyewitness account, Our Family Trouble. As with all legends, people are going to believe what they want to believe. In January 1937, Journalist T.H. Alexander wrote a syndicated column in the Tennessean called I Reckon So. Alexander wrote that his writing partner, Ben Bass, had been researching the story of the Bell Witch and came across evidence that the famous poltergeist would return that year. Legend says Kate spent 11 years haunting the Bells from 1817 to 1828. Then, promised she would return to a direct descendant in 1935. 1935 had come and gone, with no sign of Kate. Alexander claimed that was because the ghost had really departed in 1827 and planned to return 110 years later, in 1937. T.H. Alexander was a skeptic. He did not believe in the supernatural. He believed in a really good ghost story. 
the mention of the Bell Witch returning gained popularity and stirred fear in the hearts of believers in Adams, Tennessee. Four months later, a correspondent for the Tennessean reportedly heard strange noises when he visited the Bell Witch Cave and later experienced blackouts. People in Adams immediately blamed Kate. This stirred up a lot of fear and anxiety in Adams, but over in Nashville, Tennessee, it was a good excuse for a radio show. Nashville's WSM Radio featured a dramatization of the story called The Bell Witch of Tennessee. T.H. Alexander publicized glowing reviews of that radio show, and by July, he and his writing partner published their story, Bell Witch, America's number one ghost story. 1937 would be known as the Year of the Witch in Tennessee. The fearful response in Adams drove one of John Bell's descendants to speak out. A grandchild of Betsy Bell wrote the Tennessean and asked that the paper cease publication of the rubbish they were publishing. By the end of the year, there were fewer stories about the Bell Witch. The Bell Witch continues to stir fear in the hearts of believers. The Bell family trouble may have ended 200 years ago, but Kate's legend never will. T.H. Alexander knew why in 1937, and we know it now. People love a good ghost story. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can check out sources for this episode and learn more about the show at southernmysteries.com. Today marks five years since the release of the first episode of Southern Mysteries. I never imagined this independent podcast that's staffed by only me could make it this far. I may research, write, produce, and promote the show, but the people who have made it possible for years continue to be my Southern Mysteries patrons. While Southern Mysteries was on hiatus, I had a lot of new people come along to support the show. They've been listening to the archive of Southern Mysteries and patron-exclusive Lesser Knowns podcast over these past few months. And I want to say thanks to my new patrons for your support and patience while I was away. Tarina from Mount Holly, North Carolina, Dolores from Wake Forest, North Carolina, Anitra from Columbia, Missouri, Rhonda from Illinois, Kenneth from Kentucky, Brittany from Fletcher, North Carolina, Schnitterfer from Cathedral City, California, Deanna from Richmond, Kentucky, Mickey from Lowell, North Carolina, and the list goes on. I'm so appreciative for all of you. Geneva from Rockville, Maryland, Sheena from Hernando, Mississippi, Melinda from Slidell, Louisiana, Amber from Fort Washington, Maryland, Rhonda from Crawfordville, Florida, Leslie Ann from New Jersey, James from Brown Summit, North Carolina, and a special thanks to all of you supporting Southern Mysteries from mysterious locations, including Katrina, Trisha Lynn, Renee, Judy, Dusty, Heidi, April, Janice, Laura, Lee, James, and Jenny. I appreciate you all so much for your support. 
And look, for those of you listening who cannot financially support a show right now, there are other ways to show your support for Southern Mysteries. You can rate and review the show where you're listening now, which helps other people discover Southern Mysteries. It's an easy and free way to help spread the word. However you have supported the show over these past few years, know that it is appreciated and I never take you for granted. Thanks for listening. Be careful what we got to buy. There might be